Having been in the United States now for the required period of time last weekend, my wife Rachel, who was just up here, and I took a step of applying to become U.S. citizens. I'm glad you're pleased. Hopefully, USCIS will be equally as pleased and will accept our application. It should be around eight months before we hear back, but we'll keep you updated on our progress. I would guess that uh, most people in this room, like me, have great affection for this nation, the United States. And so I wonder, how would you feel if tomorrow morning you were to wake up to news that the White House the Capitol building in D.C., and the Statue of Liberty had all been destroyed. And not only that, but foreign armies had now positioned forces around the ruins of those three great structures. Now, I know it sounds implausible, right? Almost impossible. But just for a second, imagine that that was the news when you woke up tomorrow morning. How would you feel? I'd imagine you'd feel pretty similar to the people of Judah, when in 70 AD their capital city of Jerusalem was invaded by the Roman army, the temple, all the buildings in the city were destroyed, the walls were broken down, and everyone who wasn't killed was marched off to Rome as captives in a victory parade. Everything that symbolized their nation destroyed. And not only that, but the very place where they believed God himself dwelt, the temple, all gone. That is the event to which today's passage of Scripture points us. But within that devastation, we will find that there is hope. God is doing a new thing, and this new thing is so much more glorious than what has gone before. And my prayer is that whatever you might be facing in your life, that you might find hope in that firm foundation of Jesus, and that you might be enabled to endure whatever lies in front of you. Well, good morning. Welcome to Chapel Hill, especially if you're new with us. My name's Ellis. I'm one of the pastors here. Over the last 18 months, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, one of the four biblical accounts we have of the life of Jesus, and we only have three chapters left. And we're going to spend the next 10 weeks covering those three chapters, so I invite you to grab a Bible. We're in chapter 21, Luke chapter 21. If you get one of those Bibles from the pew, it's on page 880. So Luke 21, page 880 in the pew Bibles. We're in the closing phases of Jesus's ministry, and before his arrest and crucifixion, we have one final section of teaching from Jesus in the temple. And in his final public teaching, Jesus is going to warn his listeners about the destruction that is facing the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to exhort them in multiple ways to remain hopeful in the face of that devastation. Now listen to how Luke records it, chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, that's Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come 
when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So as Jesus is standing in the temple, there were many gathered there who began to speak of the beauty of the temple, and it was a magnificent structure. Take a look at this recreation that we have of that temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, he described the temple this way. The gate opening into the temple was completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had above it golden vines from which hung grape clusters as tall as a man, and it had golden doors 80 feet high and 24 feet broad. Before these hung a veil of equal length of Babylonian tapestry with embroidery of blue and fine linen of scarlet also and purple wrought with marvelous skill. You know, it's, it's no wonder that the Jews marveled at this structure. But more than just magnificent beauty, the temple was also the place where they believed God himself dwelt. Ever since the people of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, God had commanded them to build a sanctuary, a place where he would dwell amongst them. First it was a tent, and later on it was a a building, a temple, and this temple that Jesus is now standing in as we read these words was the second temple in Jerusalem. It was built after the people of God returned from exile 500 years earlier. It was not only a magnificent building, like I said, but it was the very means and mechanism by which God's people could meet with God himself. My mom lives 5,000 miles away in England. In order for me to maintain a relationship with my mom, there are a couple of different means and mechanisms which we use. The first is air travel. We travel to go and see one another so we can be physically present. And the second is FaceTime. We speak to one another and see one another's faces through the wonders of technology. Now, without these two means, maintaining that relationship with my mom would be really hard. For many ways, the temple in Jerusalem was to the Jews like air travel and FaceTime is to me and my mom. The temple was the means and mechanism by which they connected with this God of the heavens, who to them felt at times far away. And yet through the means of the temple, they were enabled to enter into relationship with him. So for Jesus to say that the temple is going to be destroyed, the very means by which God's people can meet with him, that would be a really significant change in their understanding of how God works and how they could connect with him. In fact, it would probably start to raise some questions for them. Why on earth, God, would you want to destroy the very means by which we connect with you. Surely you want us to meet with you, right? And the reality is that God is bringing about this destruction of the temple because he wants to show the Jewish people that there is a new way that he is going to meet with them. God has a new temple, and that new temple is Jesus himself. Jesus was recorded as saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about his own body as the temple. And the New Testament writers affirm that Jesus's body, the body of Christ, which is the church, is now the temple of God. 
No longer do we have to physically travel to Jerusalem to meet with God. We can meet with Him wherever we are gathered together as the church, because God's presence dwells within the body of Christ, the new temple, the church. This is a radical concept to those who are standing around Jesus on the day he was teaching. Just this sheer idea that the temple is going to be destroyed is huge news. And so they have a couple of questions for Jesus. Take a look at verse 7. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They have two questions for Jesus. First one, when's this destruction of the temple going to happen? And the second one, what are going to be the signs that it's about to happen? And Jesus, in this teaching that follows, is going to respond to those two questions. And we're going to read the first half of that teaching this week. We're going to save the second half for next week. It's quite a lengthy teaching. But in this first half, Jesus is going to focus upon the signs that will precede the destruction of the temple. So let's take a read. Verse 8 is where it begins. And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus asked two questions, right? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign or signs that this is about to happen? And in this section of Jesus' response, we hear him list out the signs that will occur before the destruction of the temple. And I counted eight of them. You might count more, you might count less. But the eight that I counted, the eight signs that Jesus lists off are false prophets, rumors of wars, actual wars, earthquakes, famines, signs in the heavens, persecution, 
and finally armies surrounding Jerusalem. And every single one of these things that Jesus mentions here took place in the 37 years between when he was speaking and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And we know this because we have evidence of it. Several of these things were actually recorded in the book of Acts. This was kind of part two to Luke's work, and actually we're going to study the book of Acts after Easter. But the book of Acts records several instances of religious imposters and messianic pretenders. It, inclu- it, it records an earthquake in Philippi. It records a famine, and it has numerous instances of persecution where Jesus' disciples were thrown into prison, brought before synagogues, governors, and kings. But we have more evidence outside of the book of Acts that tell us all these things, all these signs took place during the first century. We have historians such as Josephus and Tacitus who record during that period of time that there were many military conflicts, numerous earthquakes, multiple famines, a comet in the heavens. We now know that that's Halley's comet. It didn't have that name back then. And finally, they record that Jerusalem was surrounded by armies, and the city was destroyed, and people were taken as captives to Rome. All of that took place. Every single thing that Jesus spoke about here is recorded as having taken place before 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed. And what this means is that God knew exactly what he was doing in allowing the Jerusalem temple to be destroyed. This wasn't a surprise. God didn't go, oh my goodness, I didn't expect the Roman armies to come and destroy the Jerusalem temple. How am I going to connect with my people anymore? God knew exactly what he was doing because he was pointing people to the reality that there is now a new temple Everything that Jesus had been teaching about himself and who he was, this was God's confirmation, concrete reality that this is true. What Jesus told you is true. The old way of doing things is gone and the new way has come. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus's body is now where God dwells. The people of God, the body of Christ, the church are the new temple of God. And this means that we don't need to travel to a specific place to meet with God, but through Jesus we can meet with God anywhere that we gather as the church. His Spirit inhabits us, His people, not some building in some particular part of the world. And most importantly, this means our faith is rock solid and secure, because our faith doesn't dwell in a building. It doesn't dwell in a human-made structure that can be destroyed. Our faith dwells in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Amen. See, this world will fail us. Our bodies are going to fail us. Every person in our lives at some point will fail us, but Jesus will not fail us. The Jerusalem temple failed, but Jesus, the new temple, will never fail us. He will not be conquered or broken down. He will continue to reign victorious over all that we face. And although we don't face the destruction of the temple, like those first century disciples, we do face destruction, devastation, desolation in areas of our lives. Perhaps in areas of our lives that 
Maybe we even feel like we've worked really hard on. We try to do what God asked us to do in. Maybe we face desolation or, or destruction or, or devastation in our, our marriage. We're in our health. We're in our career. Maybe in our money. Maybe our kids. Our house. Our friends. Our family. You fill in the blank. Every single one of us at some time in our life faces devastation or destruction. How do we handle that? How do we get through that? The same way that Jesus told those first century disciples to get through it. To hold on to the rock-solid hope we have in Jesus. And Jesus gives four very practical ways to do this in the verses that we just read. Four very down-to-earth ways that we can put our hope in Jesus in the face of devastation. So as we close, let's look at each one of those four ways in turn and think about how that applies to us in our unique situation. So the first way we can put our hope in Jesus, according to what Jesus said, is don't be deceived. A little while back, I watched the documentary The Social Dilemma. It explores the dangerous impact of social media, and what it drew out was that one of the most dangerous ways or potent ways that social media has an impact on us is through the algorithms that determine what content is placed on our social media feed. Pure and simply, the algorithms are designed to give us content that captures our attention. And then these social media companies sell our attention to advertisers and make money. But if an algorithm is designed to just give you something that captures your attention, that algorithm is not designed necessarily to give you something that's true. This means that very often, we are being fed falsehoods, deceptions on our social media feed. Now, they may not be blatant and obvious, but they are very often false nonetheless. The algorithm is not designed to tell you what's true or false. It's just designed to give you something that captures your attention. And this deception in social media, it, it happens in all areas of our lives. In fact, Jesus, in verse 8 of our passage, read, and he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Jesus says that there's going to be people in this world who are going to try and deceive us about what is true. And we're going to be tempted to believe what they say and to go after them. But we are not to do that, Jesus says. Because Jesus alone is the truth. He alone has the words of life. And if we are being more formed by the words of this world than we are being formed by the words of God, then we are likely being deceived. Here's a question to reflect on. When you are going through something hard in your life, to whose words do you turn for comfort? Do you turn to doom-scrolling social media? Do you turn to the, the TV? Or do you turn to the everlasting words of truth, the words of Jesus? If you are being more formed by the words of this world than you are by the words of Christ, you're likely being deceived. Jesus says, don't be deceived. He is the truth. 
Come to him. So that's the first way we can live out our hope in the face of devastation. Don't be deceived. Come to Jesus. He is the truth. Second, don't be afraid. Last weekend, I'm sure you heard, Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 from Portland to Ontario had just reached 16,000 feet when a door plug violently blew off in midair, leaving a gaping hole in the side of the plane. One passenger who was seated with her 12-year-old son one row behind the section that ripped away said this, we literally thought we were going to die. Thankfully, no one died. But the fear of death is a very real thing that captures so many of us. In verse 9, Jesus tells his followers not to fear. He says, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. As followers of Jesus, we too are not to fear what is going on in this world. And the grounds upon which we're not to fear come in verse 18, where Jesus says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, Jesus can't literally mean that not a hair of our heads will perish, because only two verses earlier he said, some of you they will put to death. So what is Jesus saying here when he says not a hair of your head will perish? He's using this as an image, as a metaphor to tell us that our eternal life is secure. He's saying that no matter what you might face in this life, whether it's war or persecution or famine or even death itself, your eternal life is secure. And therefore, you do not need to be afraid of what will come. No matter what you are facing in your life, even if you're facing an airplane with a hole blown out the side of it, you do not need to fear because your eternal life is secure. No one can snatch that away from you. So, how do we live this out? First, don't be deceived. Second, don't be afraid. The third way we can live out this hope in Jesus is don't miss the opportunity. The former British Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill, is credited with saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. When crisis strikes, you have a choice to make. Do you view this as a threat or as an opportunity? When the coronavirus pandemic hit and churches closed, many saw that as a threat. But I'm grateful that our team saw it as an opportunity. We'd already been planning our move to live streaming, and since we made that shift during the pandemic, we've reached thousands of people with the gospel who might otherwise never have been reached through the work of Chapel Hill. And Jesus told his followers to view the crises that they will face as an opportunity to share the gospel. In the context of him telling his followers that they'd be handed over to the authorities, he says, verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Very often, the greatest opportunity we have to bear witness comes in our greatest moment of crisis. Whatever crises you might be facing right now, Jesus is saying to you, don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to bear witness to me. This might be the greatest opportunity that you've ever had. 
Don't miss it. And one way we can all not miss the opportunity is to invite someone to Alpha. It starts in 10 days. Don't miss the opportunity. So, how do we live this out? First, don't be deceived. Second, don't be afraid. Third, don't miss the opportunity. And the fourth and final way we can live out this hope we have in this rock-solid foundation of Jesus is don't give up. A couple of months ago, I was taking my son to a soccer game in Maple Valley early on a Saturday morning. It had rained so heavily all night. It was continuing to rain heavily in the morning. I knew this drive was going to be a little bit hairy, but I didn't predict quite how much standing water there was going to be on the road. I was driving down Highway 18, coming into Auburn. I saw brake lights going off in front of me, so I slowly tapped the brakes, and then the car in the lane next to me lifted up a literal tidal wave of water that landed on my windshield. For a full two seconds, I saw nothing whatsoever. I was just left holding on for dear life, praying, God, get me through this, God, get me through this. (gasps) I did only for it to happen two more times in the next two minutes. In verse 19 of this passage, Jesus tells his followers, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. That word for endurance is one of Pastor Mark's favorite Greek words, hupomene, hupomene. Do you want to say that together? Hupomene. Pastor Mark assures me it can be translated, hang in there, baby. As I drove down Highway 18 that day, I felt like that was what I was doing. Just hanging in there, white-knuckling it, not knowing if I was going to make it through or not, but holding on for dear life because I didn't dare want to twist the wheel one way or the other. The promise of Jesus in this verse is that if we hang in there, we will gain our lives. If we hold on to Him through whatever we are facing we will attain eternal life in Him. So whatever it is that you are facing right now, don't give up. Hold on to Jesus. Hang in there, baby. Jesus has eternal life for you on the other side. So, we're all facing things in our lives. Maybe they don't feel like desolation, but for some of us they do. And whatever it is that you might be going through, whatever struggles that you have, we have a secure hope in Jesus. He's the new temple that won't be destroyed. He has won the victory. As we maintain that hope, Jesus encourages us in four very practical ways of how we can place our hope in him. First, don't be deceived by this world but look to Jesus for the truth. Second, don't be afraid of death, but know that you have eternal life in him. Third, don't miss the opportunity, but bear witness to Jesus. And fourth and finally, don't give up, or in the words of Pastor Mark, hang in there, baby. Would you pray with me that these might be true of us? Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for this reality that we can meet with you wherever we are gathered together. We don't have to 
go to a specific place, but your glory has filled the whole earth through the body of Christ. Well, thank you for your presence here with us today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be poured out into our lives, to fill us up, that we may be empowered to live out our faith in these ways to which we are called to live it out. Or that we may not be deceived by this world, the words of this world, as soothing as they might be, but we might look to your words, the word of truth. Pray that you would take away all fear of death now in the name of Jesus. Anyone here who is struggling with that right now, we ask that it would lift in Jesus' name, that you would instill in them the hope that is theirs of eternal life in Christ. Holy Spirit, give us courage, whatever we might be facing. Well, I pray we would not miss the opportunity. Put people on our hearts right now to whom you are calling us to bear witness. Lord, help us to maintain integrity in our lives that our witness may be true. Open our eyes to see the opportunities we're missing on a daily basis. And finally, Lord, give us strength to hang on. You promise that you will keep us safe in your name until the end. That you will bring to completion the work that you have begun. And so we throw ourselves upon that this morning. We cling to Jesus in the midst of this world. For we know that our eternal life, our hope in him is secure. Pray this now in the name of Jesus.
chapel just behind that stained glass whatever you're facing the power of prayer God, God can God will use that to enable you to overcome so don't hesitate to go and ask for prayer if you're new here welcome we're glad you're here thanks for joining us pastor Rachel would love to meet you she's got a gift for you she's going to be back at the wood wall please do go and say hi to her after the service and for all of us I want to leave you with a blessing as we go out from this place the way we receive it is to raise up our hands like this the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace both now and forevermore in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen